0: Bibles with me to Luke chapter fourteen verses twenty-five to thirty-five, young disciples, you'll need that for your sermon guide. You can find that on page eight hundred and eight. Uh, I'm sorry, eight hundred and seventy-four. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Now, as we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, I have a passage and a sermon title that, in two words, I think sums up the whole message of Luke. Okay. Anybody want to guess what it is? Oh, is it already on the screen? <laughs> Doggone it. No, it's not upside down. Ah, oh, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Follow Jesus. That's the whole message of Luke. You know, after Luke, we're going to go on through Acts. You know what the, the two-word summation of Acts is going to be? Follow Jesus through the Holy Spirit, right? So, two questions that I want to ask today. Do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? And second, do you have what it takes to not follow Jesus? So with that said, if you are able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. If you're not able to stand today, please stand with us in your heart. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. thanks be to God. You may be seated. How many of you have ever heard or used the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid? Yeah? Okay. You know, it's like if somebody all of a sudden gets into a certain group or ideology, we might say, dude, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Now, how many of you know where that phrase originally came from? (laughs) Right? If you're around in the 70s, then you probably know what's coming. So it came from a cult named the People's Temple, led by a criminal named Jim Jones. Jones had so indoctrinated his followers that he convinced almost a thousand of them to move to a commune in Guyana. And then, in response to growing investigation about intrigue and abuse and murder, Jones led over 900 people to drink Kool-Aid that had been laced with poison, which killed all of them. So, my friend, whatever you do, don't what? Drink the Kool-Aid. Now, can you imagine someone walking up to you and saying, hey, Follow me. I have the way to eternal life. And oh, by the way, that means that you're going to have to drink poison Kool-Aid. You know, we would be like, anybody I remember the sermon last week, you'd be like that World War II general who was like, nuts. You're crazy. I am not doing that. But here's, here's what you've got to understand about the complexity of today's passage. It's that when Jesus says, hey, follow me, I I will show you the way to eternal life. And oh, by the way, that means you're going to have to carry a cross. It kind of sounds like the same thing. You see, this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And he had already spoken like this to his closest followers. But now that great crowds are starting to follow him, he says the same thing to them. So think about why these crowds would have been so interested in following Jesus. He was a great teacher, right? He was a healer. He was kind. He was popular. He could multiply food for everyone. He put religious snobs in their place. And he seemed like the revolutionary leader to overthrow the power of Rome. Like... Why would you not want to follow Jesus? The benefits of this were amazing. But here's just how kind Jesus actually was. Rather than deceiving people like a cult leader, he was completely honest with them and upfront about the requirements of following him. What were those requirements? And more importantly, do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? So let's consider this together, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So you all are starting to see now how this is the perfect passage for Child Dedication Sunday, Right? You know, all that we just said a minute ago about loving your kids? Never mind. You should hate them. Okay? Jesus said so. What on God's green earth does this mean? Okay, so doesn't elsewhere Jesus tell us that the greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself? So what in the world could this possibly mean? Well, let me explain. First, what it doesn't mean. When Jesus says you must hate these people and your own life, he doesn't mean to dislike or mistreat or wish harm on them. In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word hate can mean either hate, as we use the word today, or it can simply mean to love comparatively less. For example, when we are told in Genesis chapter 29 that a man named Jacob loved his wife Rachel but hated his wife, Leah. It doesn't mean that he was abusive toward Leah, but simply that he loved her comparatively less than he loved Rachel. And you all may remember this detail when we were going through our series in Genesis. Jacob actually did 14 years of hard manual labor in order to have Rachel as his wife. But... The author of Genesis tells us that to Jacob, those 14 years felt like just a day. Why? Anybody remember? How could 14 years possibly feel like just a day? Because of how much he loved Rachel. You see, she was the supreme delight of his heart. So then, when Jesus says, "You must hate," here's what he does mean to be his disciple. Jesus must be the supreme delight of your heart. In regard to your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even your plans for your own life, you must love them comparatively less than you love Jesus. Now, conceptually, like we have a category for this, there's a cultural place where this happens on the regular. When a couple is exchanging their vows at a wedding ceremony, what's one of the questions to which they must respond in regard to one another? It goes like this. Will you love, comfort, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her so long as you both live? Now, to forsake all others doesn't mean the couple is going to suddenly abandon every other relationship in their life, right? That would be weird. It means they are committing to make one another the supreme relationship in their lives with absolute fidelity. Nothing in competition. Parents aren't most important anymore. Children won't be most important when they come. Work isn't most important. Possessions aren't most important. The deepest affection and the wholehearted commitment that flows from that affection belongs to the spouse. That's what it means to forsake all others. So, conceptually, you have a place for this. But, in reality, this is completely upside down. So, take this. In the context that Jesus says this, family was everything. Like in a traditional communal society, those of you who are maybe from more rural areas like me, if you don't have family, you feel like nothing in the eyes of people around you. So when Jesus says to them in that context, hate your family, he's demanding nothing less than the nearest and dearest place in their hearts. The choicest real estate is what he is after here. Or conversely, in our modern individualistic society, it's more so personal fulfillment that is everything. If your plans and dreams for your life aren't working out for you, you feel like nothing in the eyes of people around you. And so when Jesus says, hate even your own life, he's demanding nothing less than the nearest and dearest place in our world hearts the choicest real estate it's what he wants that's the first requirement that Jesus communicates to the crowd and to us the second one comes in verse 27 whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple now if the crowd thought the first requirement was upside down this one would have sounded completely insane The crowd knew well that when Roman soldiers marched away a person carrying a cross, that person was one, a criminal, and two, condemned to death. He would be nailed to that cross naked until he either suffocated, bled to death, or the elements eventually killed him. That means the cross was a form of execution specifically designed not just to be excruciating, but to be humiliating. And prolonged. And so when Jesus says, bear your own cross, like it's far worse than just saying, here, drink the Kool Aid. Why? Because you drink the Kool Aid and what happens? You fall over dead one time, it's over, done. But to carry a cross, that means committing yourself to humiliating and prolonged suffering with the only relief being death. That's insane. Now, that didn't literally mean that every disciple of Jesus would be crucified. It meant that they would have to die to themselves. So, for example, when I'm helping to prepare someone to go be a missionary, they often are thinking very specifically about the possibility that they might have to die at some point. You just have to consider that. Someone may hate you and your message about Jesus and kidnap you, kill you, whatever. But what they really need to be preparing for, perhaps more so than that, is not the death that could happen in a single moment, but the death that will be what I might call death by a thousand paper cuts. That is daily death. Laying down everything that has made you who you are up to that point in your life. Your ability to speak a language that others understand, gone. You've got to lay that down. Your ability to relate to others in a culture that's comfortable to you, you've got to lay that down. For me, I called it the four Fs of the things that I had to die to all the time in order to choose to stay there as a missionary. The four Fs were family, friends, food, and football. I had to give them all up. Now, those, I mean, it doesn't sound very significant, but you just day in and day out, dying to yourself, laying those things down, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. And that's what Jesus is calling people to hear when he says to die to yourself. Paul, the apostle, would later capture this idea in the simple phrase, I die daily. Listen, y'all, I am dying every day, laying my life down to follow Christ. If you're not going to walk in the ways of sin, you're going to have to do what? Die to yourself daily. If you're going to choose to follow the plans of Jesus for your life instead of your own plans, what are you going to have to do? Die daily. Now this goes back to my current favorite way to communicate the good news about Jesus. To be a Christian isn't just believing in Jesus as the Son of God. Even demons Believe that, and they shudder at His Lordship. No, being a Christian means taking off your crown as the Lord of your life and giving it to Jesus. And saying to Him, you are now the Lord of my life. You have complete authority over everything. Nothing is held back from you. And not as a one-time decision But day after day after day, that means dying every day to what you want in order to align your desires and actions with what Jesus wants. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the second requirement that Jesus gives to the crowd and to us. And then he follows it in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now again, unto the end of being graciously honest with us, Jesus gives two analogies of considering what it takes to follow him. The first is this watchtower that's built over a person's property. Now, everyone in the community would walk past that sort of project and be able to clearly see it. And so, when it then could not be completed, it would become a glaring monument to mismanagement. Now, we do the same thing today. So think about passing by, let's say, a really fancy house that someone has endeavored to begin building from the ground up. And then suddenly, out of nowhere and indefinitely, the construction stops. Trucks leave, equipment's gone, material's there no longer. It's obvious that it is not moving forward at all unless somebody else takes on that project. Now, we don't drive by and go, ha ha, I knew that was going to happen. Right, maybe you do, but we shouldn't. What happens, though, instead in our mocking and our hearts goes like this. Well, I guess that person did what? bit off more than they could chew. You know that phrase? If you're an international friend within our midst, this is an idiom that we use that kind of means, okay, you start something that you couldn't finish. Don't bite off more of a piece of a hamburger that you can't then chew and get it down. Because guess what? That's going to be embarrassing when it all comes back out. So here Jesus is saying to anyone considering following him, simply, in our language, don't bite off more than you can chew. Okay, sit down, count the cost, consider the requirements. Now, one of the most grieved things in the New Testament is something called apostasy. It is the renunciation of a commitment to follow Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews speaks these fearful words about it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, I know we all ebb and flow in our Christian lives, and so to speak this in a way so that it hits where it needs to hit and it doesn't hit where it doesn't need to hit, to hold Jesus up to contempt... Take it back to the sermon last week where Jesus showed contempt to King Herod when King Herod threatened him. That was Jesus saying, you tell that fox that I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until the work is finished, okay? I don't live on his terms. To live in a state of apostasy after you have had some form of experience with the Christian life is to take on a posture where you say to Jesus, Jesus, you are the fox that I'm telling. You keep your hands off my life. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I say it's finished. Okay, that's the kind of posture that an apostate takes on in their heart. And what is the message that I'm ultimately getting at here? It's better to choose to not follow Jesus yet than to follow naively and then fall away. Okay? Because, as Jesus will say later, once salt has lost its taste, it cannot be restored, and it is good for nothing but being thrown away. So, my friends... I ask you today, do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? And before you answer that, let me follow that with another question. Do you have what it takes to not follow Jesus? All right, the first analogy, let me try to explain how these two things fit together. In the first analogy, the builder is acting on his own initiative. He wants to build the tower and he can choose to go for it or not. And this represents the person who comes to Jesus and decides if they are so bold as to try to meet the requirements and get the reward. But in the second analogy that Jesus is going to give us, a king is being invaded and he has no choice but to respond. And so this represents the person whom Jesus confronts and that person decides if they are so bold as to refuse the requirements and lose out on the reward. See how these two things are... They're similar, but they're going from two different angles here. And so it begins in verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So here the king is being attacked by an army that's twice his size. Now, a foolish king does what? He just barrels into battle, right? Like, oh, we're going to take him down, okay? He probably gets slaughtered and loses his kingdom. But a wise king would do what in this scenario? Yeah, consider whether or not he can win, and if not, avoids war and conquest by making peace. Now, we can start, like I did this week, getting into all kinds of questions like, wait a minute, Jesus, are you saying that like, we're supposed to go to war or you're saying that we're like supposed to surrender. But I think that would be stretching the analogy too far here. In either response of the king, he has to be prepared to lose something significant, doesn't he? And so, saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to follow Jesus means losing something. He's being clear about that. But let's be clear about this. Saying no to Jesus means losing far more, okay? And that's what Jesus is getting at, which is why he continues in verse 33. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, again, let's talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that you have to sell all your possessions to follow Jesus. But wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus literally say to a rich young ruler, sell all that you have and follow me? Y'all remember that story? It's like, wait a minute, is this contradicting scripture here? Well, yes, Jesus does say that because for that man, his love for his possessions was the primary rival to Jesus becoming the supreme delight of his heart. And that's what Jesus asks for. And Jesus actually describes this at another time in a parable. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered back up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, you don't really get the sense here that this guy who finds this treasure is like, man, i got to sell everything. Like, I hate Facebook Marketplace. Like, I don't want to get back on there and have to be dealing with all these people trying to trade me their pinto for all I'm trying to sell. Come on. This is crazy. No, this guy's like, man, my little net worth, like you you squeeze me dry, you might get six figures out of me with all I got. My little net worth compared to millions in treasure, no competition. I sell it all, get that field. And that's getting at what Jesus does mean here. Renouncing all that you have refers to far more than just possessions. Jesus is talking about like, all earthly attachments anything that dwells in the nearest and dearest part of your heart and y'all that's different for everyone isn't it for some of you the thought that Jesus might tell you to leave everything behind and go be a missionary in Africa is terrifying maybe because of the idol that you have made of your life here For me, on the other hand, the thought of Jesus telling me to leave everything behind as a missionary in Africa and go live in America was terrifying because of the idol I had made of my life there. And guess what? That's exactly what Jesus asked for in my life. And so it makes no difference the perceived virtue or vice of what is the supreme delight of your heart. It all has to go at the feet of Jesus in order to be his disciple. Otherwise, the treasure cannot be yours. And so I ask you, friends, do you dare miss out on that treasure? Do you have what it takes to not follow Jesus? Now, as I bring this to a close this morning, let me be so bold as to answer these questions for you. Do you have what it takes? No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, that probably sounds confusing to you. Many of you in this room throughout this sermon have been saying to yourself, yes, I do have what it takes. Or, I really want to have what it takes. What do I need to leave here today motivated to give up so that I have what it takes? And I appreciate that. Why would you say that, though? Because many of you have been conditioned to respond that way to this passage. If you've been around the church at all, specifically our tribe of Christianity, we tend to use this passage to hammer out a deeper commitment from people. Toward the church, or evangelism, or missions, or generosity, or whatever. And we stack it then with stories about missionaries and martyrs. And it has a way of crushing people, except for those who might be drinking the Kool-Aid. Right? Well, I think this hard saying is meant to crush something. Our trust in ourselves. You see, we are also conditioned to respond in a particular way to this passage because of the nature of our sinful hearts. A heart that is in rebellion against God always wants to make a good standing for itself by its own means. I can do this. Yes, I do have what it takes. And it's like in Matthew 20, when two of Jesus' apostles send their mom to ask Jesus if they can sit at his right hand and left hand in the kingdom of God one day. Y'all remember that story? Ever heard it? And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. And he asked this similar question that we've been hearing today. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And there he is referring to the cup of wrath that God will pour out on him for the sins of the whole world, the cross, the beatings, the tomb. And they said to him, We are able. No, you ain't, homie. You don't have a clue. The thought of selling everything you have or drinking the poison Kool-Aid as a martyr, like those are actually easier commitments than what Jesus is asking because they are singular acts. Do it one time and you're done. Religious fanatics do that in every religion all over the world for all of history. But to truly sit down and count the cost and consider the requirements. Like you come to realize that you will have to die to yourself constantly and perfectly for the rest of your life. And that is a crushing weight. You can't do that. Sometimes we'll say to our children, we're trying to teach them the implications of the gospel and the depths of the sin in their hearts so that they see their need for a Savior. Say, have you ever lied? Oh, yeah, maybe one time. Have you ever hated someone else and been really mean to them and selfish? Yeah, I can remember doing that one or two times. Is there ever a singular moment in your life where you have stopped making Jesus the most important thing that you can ever think of or imagine? How about that question for you? Right? That shows you what we're being required of that we cannot meet because of our sin. And so the truly naive look at the army twice their size and say what? We're able. We can do this. Yeah, I can drink that cup. I can take the full weight of God's wrath. No problem. I'm a pretty strong guy. And it is the wise, however, who say we cannot. And we surrender. White flag. But who are we surrendering to? To a criminal. Okay? That's really what it means to follow Jesus. To carry a cross meant that Jesus was a condemned criminal. Condemned for what? He did no wrong, no sin within him. In fact, listen to this about Jesus. He actually died to himself constantly and perfectly his whole life in order to make God the supreme delight of his heart nonstop 24-7, 365, 33 years. And though Jesus was the Son of God, he renounced all that he had, equality with God even forsaking all others father mother don't even want to go there with a wife children no brothers sisters even his own life committing to humiliating and prolonged suffering with the only relief being what death in a tomb why why would jesus take on being a condemned criminal when he was not Why would he take on the requirements that we have set out here today when he didn't have to? Because he knew you couldn't. And so he did it for you. Because that's how much he loves you. My friends, hear this good news today. Jesus has already taken the full crushing weight of the cross and the wrath of God. He has already met the demands of what God requires. Give up trying to have what it takes. Only He did. Lay down the crown of trying to measure up and give it to Him and say, I surrender. And if you've never done that, do it today. Like, give up. That's how you win. Give up to him. He paid it for you because he loves you that much. And all you got to do is trust in that instead of trusting yourself. And you get it all. And listen, if you've already done that today, do it again. And do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Okay? And then Paul the Apostle will say this of you. As you say, I die daily. Along with Paul, he says this of you. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. That means by faith, when you stop trusting in yourself and you're trusting in him, not just in a one-time act, but in day after day after day. That means these powerful, eternal, theological truths. When he died, you died. When he forsook, you forsook. When he renounced you renounced. And when He rose, you rose. To carry the cross is to live in the shadow of the cross. It is to draw from the power of Christ in you to die daily and to gladly give up the nearest and dearest part of your heart. Okay? Four quick implications of this. First, following Jesus is personal. The ultimate end of dying to yourself is not grief and sorrow, but the joy and life that comes from knowing Jesus. Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, not the concept, not the religion around this. Jesus, the person, is the reward. Remember the parable of the kingdom that I shared just A little bit ago, okay? The man who found the treasure and what he does after that. There is a dual way to understand that parable. In one way, yes, we're meant to be like that man and forsake all that we have in light of the wonder of the treasure that is Jesus. But the only way that is possible is to understand the other meaning of that parable. And I think it's captured well in a children's song that we often sing in our household, and that often brings tears to my own eyes because of how it ministers the gospel to me. It goes like this There once was a man who found him a treasure buried out under a tree, and he sold all he had to own it forever. And this we sing to our children The treasure is you. You see? You see that? Jesus is the man who found a treasure. You. And he sold all that he had. Gave it all away. To get you. That's the gospel. That's love. That's how much he loves you. Okay? So following Jesus is personal. Second, following Jesus is emotional. Right? (laughs) Love originates from deep affection and desire. And Jesus uses emotional language in this passage, doesn't he? He says the word hate. Why would he use such emotional language? It's because he wants a heart-oriented relationship. He wants genuine love, felt love for him coming from you. He wants you to feel something about him. Let me give you this example. So let's say you're talking to somebody who's describing their marriage, and they say of their spouse, you know, I just don't feel anything anymore. Like don't, I don't think she's pretty. Like I'm bored in her presence. I don't really want to talk to her. She's just there. I'm just here. I don't feel anything anymore. Would you say, that's okay. Your relationship is fine. You know, no big deal. No, you wouldn't. You say, that's so broken. It's not okay. Let's fix, let's get down to what happened to to break down the emotional attachment of this relationship. What Jesus wants is for you to be like Jacob, losing everything gladly day by day because Jesus is the supreme delight of your heart. You feel it. Feel it. Third, third, Following Jesus is physical. Even though love is emotional, it's more than emotion, isn't it? Love has to be put into action practically. It is saying, I'm not going to walk in that sin anymore. I'm going to confess it, bring it into the light, and turn away from it. It's saying, Jesus has called me to be obedient in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable, and yet I'm going to step out and do that. It's physical. It's acted out. And unto that end enabling you to live out that physical love for jesus it happens by god's design in the context of community okay that's how following jesus is physical anybody in here met jesus personally i mean i know when you watch the chosen because like i do you're like there he is i just want (laughs) to jump right in there and say hey can i pause can we talk for a minute okay you know he's really there compels your heart to want to see him physically he's alive in heaven with a physical body when he comes you'll see him and touch him and talk with him okay all right but none of us have and so how is a spiritual life physical in this way it's because jesus is living in these people and so as you experience love and encouragement and truth from them you are getting a taste of experiencing from jesus embodied okay so following jesus is physical And and, and fourth and finally, following Jesus is gradual. This may be the best news that some of you hear in this sermon, so don't check out. Jesus may call us to a lifelong surrender, but that life does not pass in a single moment, does it? What Jesus requires in today's passage is not meant to be fully embodied as part of the profession of faith. You can't lay down a lifetime of surrender to Jesus in a singular moment. You have to live it out. Therefore, this is a lifetime surrender thing dying daily coming alive to Jesus daily until its ultimate expression when we breathe our last and come alive to finally get the reward seeing Jesus face to face because of him you can have what it takes okay on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread giving us this tangible physical, earthy picture of what it meant to follow him and depend on him for our ability to follow him. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. We're announcing today, as we do, week after week, day after day, that the whole Christian life and the message of this church is summed up in the following statement. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. If you're here today and you have followed Jesus, you've taken off the crown of your life and given it over to Him, then the invitation is for you to come forward and to be encouraged to continue following Him despite the ways that you will have to continue dying to yourself By taking bread, breaking it, dipping it into the juice, and eating it. Remembering what he has done for you and what he promises that he will do for you because he is coming again. And if you're here today and you have not taken off the crown of your life and given it to Jesus, today's the day. Do it. Give it to him. And if you need help figuring out what that's like, come and talk to one of us who will be in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. What can we say but thank you? Thank you for speaking to us so powerfully in your word. Lord, I thank you that you've designed things as such that even though you are not here with us physically right now, To proclaim these things to us. That you have embodied your spirit into people. Wherein I can stand here and proclaim on your behalf to your people by your power. A word that can impact their hearts. Both for today and for all of eternity. Thank you for that. Now pray that in this moment it would be yet another small expression. Of people who have followed you dying to themselves and following after you once again. Trusting not in their own strength to have what it takes, but trusting in what you have already done so that they might live in the shadow of the cross. They might be able to carry it because you bear up the weight of it. And Lord, I also pray in this moment that as your spirit is moving that you would be so kind to work in the hearts of those as you worked once in my own heart to take a heart of stone and to make it a heart of flesh, that it might crack open from its stony surface and give itself up and over to you that you might renew it so that that person might be able to have a relationship with you again and to follow you day after day until they meet you face to face. Be real in our midst today, Jesus. This we pray in your name, amen.